What are you seeking? What is your mind set on? I wonder over this past week, if you were to reflect on those questions, what the answer would be. Perhaps there was something that woke you up early in the morning or in the wee hours of the night that you just couldn't get your mind off of. Maybe it was a a difficulty in an important relationship in your life, perhaps with a spouse or with a, a, a child or a teenager in your family. Maybe it was something that's, um, you know, deeply disturbing you about the world in which we live. Maybe it was a deadline at work. Maybe it was that you were consumed with the latest developments in the congressional hearing on the January 6th Capitol attack that was in the news a lot this week. Or maybe you're still twisting and turning over the overturning of Roe v. Wade and just wrestling with how the church and you as a follower of Christ are to respond to that. What are you seeking on what is your mind set? After having warned the Colossians to not be taken captive by the philosophies of this world are empty deceit in the end of chapter 2 as we looked at last week together. After having urged them not to come under any rulers or authorities that are under the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore be taken captive and have their life diminished, Paul now calls them to fully live into the life of the new age, the age to which they belong in Christ. He promotes then the the resurrection ethic of the people of God now, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 6. And we're going to spend the next four or five weeks together in this section unpacking this ethic of the Christian life, the way that we are called to live as the people of God. We're going to spend our time this morning in just verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3. I believe it's on page 984 or 985 of the Bible in front of you, and I do invite you to open up the scriptures with me uh, as we dig into this text this morning. We're going to look at three things, at the foundational reality, which is the beginning of verse 1, then at the, secondly, at the primary exhortation, or one of the keys that he gives them for growing to maturity in Christ, and then third, at the reality of the reality, which is verses 3 and 4. I'll explain what I mean by that when, when we get there as well. So first, this foundational reality. Of all the true things about you, let me ask, what is the most true, the central dimension of you, of your identity, your core, that which is most foundational? That's where Paul begins in verse 1 of chapter 3. If then, he says, you have been raised with Christ... You've been raised with Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus here, you've responded to the gospel that Jesus is Lord, that he's died on the cross for your sins and been raised from the dead by the power of God, responded to that with repentance and faith, then the most important, the truest thing about you is what Paul affirms here as their foundational reality, that you have been raised with Christ. You are unioned with Jesus Paul taught this in chapter 2 as he was warning them not to be taken captive. In verse 12, he said, you have, uh, having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Though dead, God made us alive together with him. 
Our union with Christ is the truest thing about us if we are in Jesus. And that means that we've died to an old way of living, a way defined by the principalities and powers of this world, and that we've been raised to a whole new kind of life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, behold, new creation. And we know Jesus in John chapter 3 talks about a man being born again. There's a new life. And we've been invited into this new life, into this new way of living, this new age that is defined by God and his kingdom. And we enter into this union with Christ, not because we are special or because we're somehow better than our neighbors who don't know Jesus. That is far from the truth. But rather we enter into it by faith, as Paul says in verse 12 of chapter 2, if you look back, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This, this faith is what unites us with Jesus. And it is receiving, it's a posture of receptivity, of trusting, of relying upon, of believing in the King Jesus. The gift that God has given us in Christ. It's receiving that gift. That's what unites us with Jesus. And now being united with him, what is true of Jesus is true of us. That he has died and we have died. That he's been raised and we've been raised. And this is the most true thing about us. Not the fact that you may be a father or a mother or a son or a daughter or a lawyer or a tradesman or a student or a campus minister, or a pastor. All of those things are true about you, but they're not the truest thing about you. What is most true about you is that you are unioned with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. If then you have been raised with Christ. As basic training is the foundation for the life of a soldier, so Dying and rising with Christ, our union with Christ is the foundation for the life of the Christian. It is the, the, the base on which the ethic of resurrection life is built, as Paul is now going to build it out and unpack this in Colossians chapter 3. So that is the foundational reality. You are raised with Christ. Let's move second and a bit more extensively to this key that Paul gives for growing to maturity, this primary exhortation in verse 1b and verse 2. He now exhorts these young Christians in this town, in modern-day Turkey, in the Greco-Roman world back then, to an activity of mind and will. And it really makes sense. There's a logic to this. If the truest thing about you is your union with Christ and that you've died with him and been raised with him, then what Paul is exhorting them to next is to dwell upon this and to seek it more and more and more in your life. So look with me at the text. He continues, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So we want to ask two questions of this little bit of our text. What are these things that are above? And then secondly, what does it mean to seek them or to set our minds on them? So what are these things? Well, first, let's observe that this realm of the above is where Christ is, Paul says, seated at the right hand of God. That is an allusion to Psalm 110, where the anointed ruler of God, the Messiah, is seated at God's right hand. He sits down at God's right hand, and God subjects all 
enemies to him. So this reference to Christ being seated is a reference to his sovereign rule and authority over all things. Things that are above then can be understood as both Christ himself, he is there, but also as the things of Christ's kingdom and sovereign rule. These are the things that are above. Holiness, self-giving love, reconciliation, true worship of the living God, and so much more. And Paul will unpack many of these things throughout the rest of chapter 3. Notice that the things that are above are contrasted with something in verse 2. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So these things that are on earth are subject to and shaped by the principalities and powers of this age. The stoichia, we looked at last time, that tough word, elemental spirits or elemental principles. These are worldly paths to flourishing, to enlightenment, to wealth, to pleasure, to power. And these worldly philosophies or empty deceits, these are resistant to and ignorant of Christ's rightful rule. And thus they are conformed to, or really they are in themselves, the patterns of this world. But remember, we serve a king whose kingdom is not of this world. He says this to Pilate in his trial. And we're told in James 4 that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And in 1, 1 John 2, we're told that not, um, not to love the world or the things in the world. Our hearts and our, our minds and our wills are not to be set on the things of the earth. That is, those things outside of Christ's rightful rule and reign. Those things that are reflective of the disordered loves of humanity and the world under sin. Rather, we are to be seeking and to have our minds set upon the things of Christ and his kingdom. Now, let me say something else about the realm of the above, the kingdom of Christ. It is, it is our native realm. It is where we, if we have been raised with Christ, as Paul says, it is where we most naturally belong. In Philippians 3, Paul teaches that our citizenship is in heaven. What he means is that we here on this earth are colonists of another realm. The realm of the above. The realm of Christ and his kingdom. And we are living out here in the here and now the life of that kingdom and making it manifest in this present age. That is where we belong and we bear witness to where we belong in our present context in this world. By being a certain way, by doing certain things, by speaking of certain things. That is the calling of the church. We are little outposts of God's kingdom. And this is why it's such a tragic thing when the church actually is conformed to the patterns of this world. Because we can no longer be that which we have been called out by God to be. When we set our minds on the things of the earth, we cannot fulfill that function that God has called us to fulfill as little outposts of his kingdom ethos and culture his reign and rule. What's more, is this realm of the above, the things that are above, where we belong, the kingdom of Christ, actually one day is going to flood our present 
reality or the dimension of reality that we live in even now, what we call these things from below or the earth. Isaiah says that the earth one day shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Revelation 21 and giving us a glimpse into the end of time says that the heavenly Jerusalem will descend out of heaven and come into the, the sphere of the earth. The realm of Christ's kingdom will one day invade in full. It's invaded in part already in, in and through Jesus and now in and through his body. That is the church, you and me. One day it's going to invade in full. And the dividing wall between that realm of reality that we know as the above and that realm that we know as this earth will be taken away and we will see him face to face. We build toward that day now. We bear witness to the king now, the one who is returning and who will appear as we read in verse 4 of our text. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Now at the beginning I asked, what, what, were you, what are you seeking what is your mind set on? I know for some of you here that your mind this last week was set on the final two episodes of season four of the Netflix hit series Stranger Things. Thanks for the fist pump over there. Um, this is mostly for the teenagers among us. But any of you uh, who have watched at least some of this series, and I'm not giving anything away by saying this, that Stranger Things explores the possibility of two overlapping spheres of reality. The world as we know it, this realm, and then in that series, the, what they call the upside down, which is a dark and demonic realm of reality that overlaps with, and at times very creatively in the series, intersects with this earth. It's actually interesting. It offers a strong picture, this series does, of biblical cosmology. Heaven and earth are two overlapping and interlocking spheres of reality most often not visible to one another, but Christ is always present to this realm of reality that we know as the earth. And you can think of heaven in many ways as a good version of the upside down as it's reflected in Stranger Things. Maybe we could call it the right side up. Because everything in this world, this world as we know it, really is the upside down. Because in our rebellion and sin, things are not as they are supposed to be. They are distorted and we are diminished. And here's the thing, if you are in Christ, if you've been raised with Christ, you really belong to that dimension of reality that our text calls above. That is your life. That is what you are to seek and to set your mind on. And to do so then, this is our kind of second question, what does it mean to set our mind on these things that are above? It is to engage the mind and the will and the heart in a longing for an embodiment of the things of Christ and his rule and his kingdom in the midst of our present day. It means that our imaginations have been captured, that what is true and real is not just what you can see and what you read about in the news, which seems like the most important things going on in the world, but what is true and real is what God has done in Christ and what God is continuing to do in Christ by the power of his spirit. And this is to be manifest more and more in our communal life together as we walk by the spirit and not by the flesh, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and so on and so forth. To set our mind on the things that are above, to seek the things that are above, is to allow those things to begin to be manifest in and through our lives. It is to do what Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It is to imagine with the best way of understanding the word imagination, it is to imagine and envision a world of category-breaking possibilities 
because of the power of Christ, a world that is not constrained by the inequalities and injustices and limitations that pervade the present day existence as we encounter it. Christ is king. Christ is ruling. Christ has been raised and we too have been raised with him and therefore we seek his good, acceptable and perfect will in all that we think about and pursue. Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. Well, how might we do this practically? Let me just try to get practical with this for a moment. We remember forgetfulness is always a problem in the life of discipleship. It was a problem for the Old Testament, the the Old Covenant people of God. It remains a problem for the New Covenant people of God. And remembering and reinforcing the central reality of our lives is so critical. In this world that is upwardly mobile and success-driven, I mean, wasn't one of the great things of the disaster of COVID was that all of our schedules kind of got vacated a bit. We all realized just how fast and furious we run and we push. And I'm guessing that most of us are back at our pre-COVID pace in terms of our calendar. In a world like this, it is inevitable that God will be pushed to the margins of our lives. And that what we think about and dwell upon will be the things that are sort of right in our face. And so throughout the centuries, the millennia of the history of God's people, they have developed, Christians who have gone before us, have developed practices, what we might call disciplines, that are the way of wisdom underneath the grace of God. And let me remind you, we began with, if then you've been raised with Christ. Well, that that is a gift that no one could ever earn. Our life is built on the foundation of what God has done for us, and that is good news. And there is rest and peace in that. But built upon that gift then throughout the history of God's people, as we've walked with Christ by the Spirit, there have been practices, disciplines that have been developed. Because we are so deeply shaped, our aims, what we seek, are, are shaped by what we actually do, by our habits and practices day in and day out. Jamie Smith, who's a philosopher professor at Calvin University, used to be known as Calvin College, wrote this. He said that these practices that we engage in are, quote, pedagogies of desire because they are rituals that form and direct our affections. Pedagogies of desire. They aim what you do day in and day out, aims your affections and your loves, and then you are shaped deeply by those things. Paul's saying, set your mind on the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. And my contention is that we take up practices that help to remind us of that ultimate reality and cause us more and more to seek it in our lives. Let me just give a few, and these won't be surprising. If they were, I should probably not be up here. Worship. When you gather with the people of God week in and week out, and I hope that even if you're not in Boston on a Sunday, you'll find a place where they believe in God's word and proclaim the gospel to go to worship with God's people. Because this practice, it is a weekly habit and ritual and practice. This practice shapes us deeply as we come and gather together in the presence of the living God to hear from him and to be ministered to by him in word and sacrament. It reminds us, we we are... As we walk through this time of worship, we are reminded of who we are, that we are in fact unioned with Christ, that we've died with him and that we've been raised with him. 
And this shapes us and directs our aims, our hearts, and our affections. We need this as a weekly shot in the arm as the people of God. So continue to come to worship. I will say that it is the trend. I don't super love statistics and surveys, but the trend is, of course, that more and more Christians are going to church or coming to corporate worship less and less frequently. And I don't know where any of you are on that personally, but I would just encourage you to make this a practice that you depend upon. It will enable you to help to to more fully seek the things that are above. A second practice I would give is, is the practice of prayer. Pray always and in all ways. Paul will go on in verse 2 of chapter 4 to say, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And we'll come to that in several weeks. But I want to suggest, consider being regimented. Prayer is direct communication with the living God. Prayer makes no sense outside of the, the truest thing about you, which is that God loves you and that you've been raised with him. So Consider being regimented about your prayers. Think about the psalmist in Psalm 119. He says, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. And out of that verse, there was this tradition that was often practiced in in monasteries where they would pray the hours seven times. There would be times of stopping and praying. And, And it was meant to put our minds again on the things above. Perhaps there are these moments. And most many of us, I'm sure, have the ritual or the practice of praying before we eat a meal. That's a good one, as long as it's not just perfunctory, but it's a stopping and giving attention to the truest thing about the world and about us, which is God and his grace toward us. Maybe little breath prayers. There's a prayer called the Jesus Prayer that's been around since at least the 4th or maybe the 6th century in the history of the church, and it goes modeled off of the prayer of the tax collector in Luke 18, and it goes like this, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. People will pray that prayer as they inhale and exhale. Maybe it's the coming to moment. What I like to think of like a coming to prayer. What's the first thing that happens? Because I believe this is actually really important as we seek to come to, be, to grow to maturity in Jesus. What's the first thing that happens in your life in the ritual of waking up? I'm sure for a lot of us, we are woken up by the anxieties and cares of this world that are consuming us. And I I know that for many of us, the temptation for the first thing that you do in the day is to check your phone. Probably it's sitting on the bedside table, because it's probably your alarm clock too. And just to enter right into the chaos and busyness and the anxieties of this world. May I suggest to you a practice, which is that the first thing when you come to consciousness in the morning out of sleep, whether that's at 3 a.m. or 6 a.m., or if you're a teenager, 11 a.m., <laughs> to be a prayer. Perhaps a passage of scripture that you've memorized. For many years, I've used Psalm 63, verses 1 through 4, uh, or 1 through 8, as this tool. And, and it's, it's been so helpful. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. It's a good reminder of what we're seeking and what we're longing for. Even though I don't feel like that every morning, but just something like that. There are many verses that could be so valuable in helping you to seek the things that are above. What is the first thing when you come to consciousness in the morning? Or of course, prayers of thanksgiving which Paul encourages in verse 2 of chapter 4 as well. Thanksgiving always just reminds us that the most important thing in our life is not the complaints or the problems or the issues that we're facing, but it's what God has done for us. We've died with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. 
Okay, a third thing. So worship and prayer. I know I'm not surprising you. A third one is engaging with God's word. We are bombarded with the things of the earth. I would guess, and I don't think this is an exaggeration, that 99% of the messages and communication that we receive on a daily basis are the things of the earth. Every single billboard that you see in the city when you're driving or biking around or walking, every single advertisement that you see if you're watching a show or on the radio is shaped by the things of this world, by the empty philosophies and deceits that will take us captive. How do we counter that? How do we counter that as the people? We open up the scriptures which have Christ on every page. And we are reminded again about his kingdom and his rule, about our identity and what is most true of us in so many ways. We desperately need the scripture. So Paul will go on to say in verse 16 of chapter 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. We need these scriptures, not just alone in our own time, but together when we gather. You know, there was this really interesting inflection point in the history of the church in the Protestant Reformation when the scriptures went from being somewhat locked up with the professionals to being put into the vernacular for the first time and spread out far and wide to God's people. And the first English scriptures that were lawfully distributed in the land of England were called the Great Bible from 1540. And in his thinking about the Great Bible and the preface to that, Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, wrote these words. Do not let anyone say to me that any of those, any of those vain words worthy of heavy, heavy condemnation. I cannot leave the courthouse. I administer the business of the city. I practice a craft. I have a wife. I am raising children. I am in charge of a household. I am a man of the world. Reading the scriptures is not for me, but for those who have been set apart, who have settled on the mountaintops, who keep this way of life continuously. Cranmer then continues, what are you saying? That attending to the scriptures is not for you since you are surrounded by multitudes of cares? Rather, it is for you more than for them, those specialists. You need more remedies. Your wife provokes you, for example. We wouldn't write it that way today, but your son, your son grieves you. Your servant angers you. Your enemy plots against you. Your friend envies you. Your neighbor curses you. Your fellow soldier trips you up. Often a lawsuit threatens you. Poverty troubles you. Loss of your property gives you grief. Prosperity puffs you up. Misfortune depresses you. And many causes and compulsions to discouragement and grief to conceit and desperation surround us on all sides. And a multitude of missiles fall from everywhere. Therefore, he says, we have a continuous need for the full armor of the scriptures. Amen? We need the word of God to help us set our mind on the things that are above and to seek the things that are above. We also need community, and that will be a feature throughout the rest of chapter 3, this gathering of people that will admonish and exhort us to walk with Christ more and more. I might suggest also a practice of giving generously. Jesus teaches us that where your treasure is, there where your heart be also. He says that you can shape your heart by your wallet. We cannot be more spiritual than Jesus. So give generously. And then the last practice I would say is just act. Act in mission. Dive in, dig in, and serve. I hope one thing is already clear, that to set your mind on things above or to seek the things that are above is not to be so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good, as the saying goes. Resurrection 
which Paul begins our text with, is bodily. It is, the, it is the stuff of matter. Matter matters to God. This world of creation matters to God. And God longs to see his power in Christ working to reconcile all things and to renew all things. So of course, as these outposts of these colonies of the kingdom of heaven in this place of earth, we are to manifest that kingdom in the ways of giving up our lives for the sake of our neighbors and the needs around us as our King Jesus did. So act. This is created, this impulse in the church of setting our mind on the things above, which enables us to do the work of mission in the world, has created schools and hospitals and human rights and world relief and Compassion International and International Justice Mission and Afghan new neighbor teams out of Park Street Church and our home ministry that ministers to our neighbors around us on this block and countless other forces. These are all manifestations of those who are seeking the things that are above. Let me give a specific example from the history of the church. Macrina the Younger, in the fourth century, the eldest of nine children, she was known as the Younger because her grandmother was Macrina the Elder, but she was the Younger, and probably outshone in terms of remembered by history by her two younger brothers, Basil the Great and Gregory of Nyssa, two of the Cappadocian fathers. She sought the things that are above. In the words of, of historian Tom Holland from his book, Dominion, he writes about the awful practice of child exposure in the Greco-Roman world. This is how he writes of it. He says, across the Roman world, wailing at the sides of roads or on rubbish tips, we would say just city dumps in our American English, babies abandoned by their parents were a common sight. Others might be dropped down drains there to perish by the hundreds. Girls in particular were liable to be winnowed ruthlessly. Those who were rescued from the wayside would invariably be raised as slaves. Brothels were full of women who as infants had been abandoned by their parents. And then Holland goes on to note that this practice of child exposure was accepted by most in the ancient world, by philosophers and politicians alike. It was just the norm until a group of people called Christians came along. And he writes this about Macrina the Younger. Erudite, charismatic, and formidably ascetic, she devoted herself to a renunciation of the world's pleasures so absolute as to fill her contemporaries with awe. So she didn't set her mind on the things that are on earth. And he continues, and yet she did not abandon the world altogether. When famine held Cappadocia in its grip and flesh clung to the bones of the poor like cobwebs, then Macrina would make a tour of the refuse tips. Those infant girls she rescued, she would take home and raise her own, as her own. Whether it was Macrina who taught Gregory, he continues, or Gregory, Macrina, both believed that within even the most defenseless newborn child, there might be glimpsed a touch of the divine said last week that we as the church are for life at every stage thanks be to God for this woman whose piety whose mind was set on the things above who sought the things above and we know this because Gregory her younger brother wrote about her life in detail because he was so encouraged by her example we thank God for her example of being for life 
and seeing the divine in these thrown away children. You know, at the beginning I asked, what are you thinking about and what are you setting your mind upon? I want to say this, that those who seek the things that are above and set their mind on the things that are above, on Christ and his kingdom, suddenly find that everything else that their mind is consumed by, and those are realities. None of us are not going to be consumed in some way by the issues at work or by broken relationships or by trials and tribulations that we're walking through when we prefer not to. But all of those things suddenly become transformed. They become opportunities for this other realm, the right side up realm, to interface and interfere and, inter and, and interject into the realm of this world. Everything that you're walking through, everything that your mind is tempted to be consumed by, when you begin to set your mind on the things above and seek the things that are above, it, they become these opportunities through which the Christ and his kingdom can be made manifest. So it changes the way that we're consumed by the broken relationship or the conflict or the difficult conversation that we're going to have tomorrow. Because suddenly that becomes the means through which the things that are above can be manifest in and through our lives as outposts of the kingdom of heaven. Well, third and, and finally, and more briefly, as we come to a close, I want to look at two of perhaps my favorite verses in scripture in verses three and four, as we see what I'm calling the reality of this reality. For you have died, Paul continues, now reinforcing what he began with, this foundational reality. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's two parts here I want us to see. And, they, and this gives a little bit more texture to the reality of our union with Christ in such a way that I think begins to help explain why it may be easy for us to get sidetracked from seeking the things that are above. And the first part is this in verse 3. Yes, you have died. That means the things of the earth are no, no longer your life, as we've seen. It means that our life is no longer characterized by self-centeredness that sin so, is so characterized by. But, but then he says this. He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's hidden. That means that it doesn't always feel like resurrection life. We can't always see it. And, our, and the world around us and, the, and our neighbors around us can't always see it either. Because it doesn't necessarily translate into victories and upward mobility and success that our world takes notice of. We hold this treasure in jars of clay, Paul says elsewhere. This life that is hidden with Christ in God is not manifest primarily in the world-conquering nature of those who are in Christ, but rather in the deeply humanizing, humble, self-giving, loving communities in which we embody all that we are meant to be as creatures of God in worship of him and in love for one another. These communities are the fruit-bearing life, as we looked at in chapter 1, that are the culmination of all that God intended for humanity in creation. This way of life is what is bearing fruit. And yet in this moment, it doesn't always appear that way, does it? We're not at the front. We're not always winning the war. We may indeed look like we are losing. Not significant, forgotten, and unimportant. 
This Christ and his kingdom doesn't seem to compete in any real way with the big players of Wall Street, Hollywood, or Washington, D.C. And these things that are on earth are more visible and more tangible at times, maybe all the time. And this can be discouraging and disheartening and even tempting. It's tempting, isn't it, to seek or to set our minds on the things that are of the earth, to obsess about the stock market or political matters, because they're right in our face. But that's part of the lie. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life, which is Christ's life, is the only life that there really is. There isn't another one. He is the author of life, the firstborn of creation, the firstborn from the dead, as Paul has communicated to the Colossians. And even though it is hidden, it is the center of genuine and true life, outside of which there is no real life. And yet it doesn't stay hidden. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. But verse 4, as we close, when Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Our king will appear. He will be made manifest in all his radiance and power and authority and sovereignty that is somewhat hidden in our present world, but will one day be made manifest in great glory. And when he appears, the forgotten ones, the mistreated ones, those who have lived according to the ways of the kingdom and not according to the ways of the world, those who have sought the things above and not the things that are on earth, those who have loved not their lives even unto death, those who have rejected a life of ever-increasing consumption in favor of generosity to the poor, those who manifest the marks of his kingdom, who have been welcomed into his kingdom by his grace, they will appear with him, he says, in glory. And that glory will make the greatest glories of this world seem like pale, fading, dim lights. For it is the only and true and magnificent glory that there is. So Paul is basically saying, look, the truest thing about you, it's hidden. But one day it's going to come into the fullness of glory and light, and you will come into that with him. So let that be a motivation and encouragement to you to seek the things that are above, to set your mind there. I can't finish without quoting the end of 2 Corinthians 4, which just speaks so much about this calling to seek the things that are above in the midst of a broken world. Paul says to the church in Corinth, so we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, things of the realm of the above. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above. This is the cry of our hearts. This is a key to growing to maturity, the center of our ambitions, the goal of our decisions, the only thing that makes sense if, in fact, we have been raised with Christ. Let's pray. Let it be so. O oh God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we would know that which is most true about us in union with you, Lord Jesus. And so set our minds and seek the things that are above.
May you be manifest in our words and actions and deeds and hearts throughout the week ahead. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.